Thanks for listening to the Hedgeye Investing Summit, featuring conversations with some of the sharpest minds in investing, including Ben Hunt, Lynn Alden, and David Rosenberg, hosted by Hedgeye CEO Keith McCullough. To get access to the other eight Hedgeye Investing Summit conversations and for more great investing content, go to Hedgeye.com. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome to another Hedgeye Investing Summit. I was just looking at some of those pictures. I mean, I used to have not white and gray hair. There used to be a bull market. Now we got another bear market. We've done this uh, many times, every time. It's, it's a lot of fun. And to start you know, this conversation, I get to have uh, a, a nice conversation with a nice, cuddly mama bear. Uh, by the name of <laughs> Stephanie Bomboy, one of my favorite people, because you know you can have fun. Parish, and uh, I, I really uh, look forward to, to our conversation here, and have looked forward to it throughout the throughout the last couple of weeks. Really, I've, I've been looking for some friends, frankly. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, growl right back at you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, uh. isn't it? A, isn't it? Like, I mean, it, it's actually kind of funny that we can have so much fun with it. I think. I mean, uh, is that partly? I know what it is for me, but I mean, for you, it's just certainly not your first rodeo. Um, you've called, again, there, there aren't that many of us that have actually called uh, the last couple. Um, and this is the third, like if you go back 25 years. Uh, are you having, like, is it, is it enjoyable this time? I mean, I hate to sound like such a ghoul, but it is enjoyable just because you can line up the dominoes and then identify how the first one's going to fall over and what's going to fall over next and next and next. Um, and it seems so clear to me. Um, and it, what's fun about it is watching how uh, offsides the market gets and, and it seems oblivious to so much of what is in my view, very uh, clear uh, in terms of where we're headed. But then again, you know, like you said, we've been doing this for a long time, so it's not surprising that the consensus is offsides and that the Fed once again is offsides. So, I mean, lather, rinse, repeat, and, and here we are. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, let's, let's do uh, both because you've done both. Let's do the 2001 period. Again, seasonal dynamics of the stock market in particular are very similar. And then, of course, we'll do 08, which I think on this day, it was Ben Bernanke himself in 08 in April that said, uh, if we have a recession, it'll be like a mild one, right? So to, to your point, uh, track record intact at the Federal Reserve. Uh, but yeah. I, I, in most of your recent writings, you've been alluding more so to 08. I know every cycle is different, but you know, maybe you know, take a step back to that point and, and keep us in this point and, and try to you know, maintain those, those same thoughts. Well, I guess you know, when people, uh, when I talk about how this downturn is going to be equal to or worse than 2008, um, I use that as a framework just to kind of give people a sense as to how significant it could be. But like you said, every cycle is different. Um, but it, ultimately, what it all comes back to is the amount of leverage that's been built up into the system that is going to have to be unwound on the back of all these rate hikes that the Fed has undertaken. And what's particularly unique about the current cycle is obviously the speed and magnitude with which the Fed has raised rates on an economy which is now toting twice as much debt going into the global financial crisis. Um, and, you know, you hear routinely uh, these throwaway lines like, yeah, but consumer and corporate balance sheets are strong. 
Well, you know, when you dig beneath the averages, that's not true at all. In fact, you know, the household balance sheets, okay, they're not as bad as they were going into 2000, you know, into the housing bubble bust, which actually started back in 2006. Um, But the corporate sector is really in rough shape. Um, But it's obscured by, again, you know, the law of averages. So people tend to miss what's going on in terms of the the um, skew between the haves and the have-nots in the corporate sector. And I think all of that will become plainly evident. But I'm not sure, you know, how far into that you want to get, Keith, because um, there's there's lots to talk about on that score. Um, but generally, my sense is just, you know, when you take an economy that's got twice as much debt as it did going into the global financial crisis and you raise rates on it in unprecedented fashion, you're going to cause major dislocations. And the idea that we are going to have some soft landing or no landing or whatever is just absolutely laughable. Uh, and the idea that, you know, it was just SVB or it's just the regional banks and it's just commercial real estate reminds me very much of Ben Bernanke's isolated and contained comment, <laughs> which I think was in 2007 when the asset back commercial paper started, uh, market started to come unglued. And of course, that was just the beginning of lots of fun and games. Well, I, I do want to go down like each of these paths. I prefer to go down the bull paths, you know, because we're going to lock arms here. You got Mama Bear, Papa Bear coming after <laughs> you. We know what your talking points are. Uh, yeah. They're widely disseminated. They generally have to do with the average of things. You know, it's not how I do macro. You know, if you take a fractal approach, Mandelbrot 101 is it's the particular thing that happens at the particular time in cycle time. And we're in that time, in that window of clock time. So I want to do that both on the consumer side and on the corporate side, because I think both are really important places where one in particular, the corporate side, was really, you know, now everybody evidently knows that, corporate, uh, that commercial real estate is contained, but no one called it a risk like six months ago. So, right. you know, so I, let's start with that one, because I get that a lot. Like, I'll be on an institutional client call like you do, and they'll say, well, I, I hear you. Guys, show slide 51 of this slide deck. Yeah, it's a, what's a trillion four amongst friends? You know, just a casual trillion four in maturities, you know, coming due okay. here. Um, that's, isn't, that just, isn't that just, like, unique to that, Keith? <laughs> I, I can't laugh because it's an institutional, you know, client. You know, I mean, what do you say right. to that? Let's just start with that one. Well, I mean, the idea that it's just the commercial real estate market is a, a joke. I mean, uh, you know, the Fed had this free money bonanza going on for the better part of uh, the decade that followed the global financial crisis. And obviously everybody took advantage and there are people who took more aggressive advantage and and, uh, that's starting to become made clear. So what you're seeing as you always do is the weakest links in the chain break first. Um, But that doesn't mean that the rest of the links are intact or are gonna stay intact. Um, inevitably, all these problems bleed out. It, you know, as I just alluded to, back in 2007, you started to see the asset-backed commercial paper market start to come unglued. And again, Bernanke said that was isolated and contained. And it turned out that the problem of excess leverage wasn't simply in that sector of the market. It was everywhere because, again, the Fed, as it has done now, you know, presided over um, interest rates that were held too low for too long, and everyone took advantage. And, and why wouldn't they? Um, so, you know, that would be my response is, you know, give it a minute. If you think it's just commercial real estate, you know, 
just uh, wait a second, because this is clearly going to devolve um, in a variety of ways. And frankly, you know, I I mentioned it earlier, the corporate uh, credit market is my primary concern, just because numerically, we're facing uh, even more of a maturity wall in the immediate future here in terms of paper that needs to roll. And, you know, if you were a junk borrower and you were borrowing at 4% a year ago, now you're borrowing at eight and a half. Um, So that's a problem. And I don't think anyone's focused on that. Um, And and there are a number of places we can cite. I mean, you mentioned the consumer. Obviously, we're already seeing delinquency rates rise there, both in credit cards and auto loans. And, uh, you know, this whole buy now, pay later thing is not surprisingly turned out to be a complete disaster. So, I mean, it's I like to use the title. I never saw the movie, but everything, everywhere, all at once um, (laughs) in terms of the the impact of this uh, higher interest rates on an overly levered economy across every sector. It's it's interesting on the um, let's do parts of different sectors. I mean, let's just do uh, which you'll know really well, guys, pull up slide 73 to get her. Uh, response. I'm showing the senior loan officer survey, CNI lending cycles. Now, I'll be damned if I, and I don't think it's an optical illusion here, Steph, but um, there's only three bars with the pink, you know, of this current juncture. You know, looking back at these other cycles when money was free, it looks like there were more bars and it looks like they went a lot lower. Didn't they go lower? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the um, give Isn't back. Isn't that just because Jamie had a good quarter? Right. <laughs> Silly me. I should have figured that out, right? It's, uh, all is good. God is dead. Everything's permitted. You know, it's, uh, we're back. So, no, I mean, it is, again, it's one of those things where, um, you know, you have to uh, admire their optimism, I guess, would be the way to put it. You know, this, this eternal optimism that says, well, you know, this time uh, it'll be a shorter and uh, shallower hit from uh, the tightening of credit conditions. So, you know, I, I enjoy it getting back to your question at the top, Keith, because it's sort of like if everyone grasped the magnitude of what we're going into right off the bat and the markets just did a complete flush, uh, it would just be quick and we'd be through it. Um, but it's this refusal to acknowledge the reality staring them in the face that creates this long grind where you have the market rally on this hope that things are going to actually not be that bad, only to get punched in the face with, you know, the next SVB or the next, you know, PIMCO uh, commercial real estate default or whatever is around the corner. Um, and it kind of uh, makes for an entertaining spectacle. Well, it is in the sense that you have, you know, I don't actually don't know what it is. I mean, the, 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 there's, the, there's the willful blindness. That's one thing. That's kind of funny, but not really. Uh, then there's the arrogance of assuming that it's you know, just one thing because you just realized there was something that you didn't realize before. And then you have the, I think you've called it, I think you've called it the everything bubble, um, correct? I mean, wrapped all around it and all this kind of behavior that many wouldn't know other, like, to me, it's almost like they, 
there are a lot of different things there, right? I mean, the ignorance part, you haven't seen a cycle, you don't know what even CNI loans are, you're just buying like YOLO Tesla options. That's what you do. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, the Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping, time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com research to subscribe. How about the behavioral component of that bubble? I mean, I mean, it's fascinating. All kidding aside, I mean, I think a lot about this because in the time that I've been in the business, you and I have been at this about the same length of time. Um, the nature of the business has changed a lot. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember when hedge funds were actually hedge funds. You know, they <laughs> they they had long positions and short positions. Yeah. You know, um, and I actually back in the day covered uh, at Fidelity Jeff Finnick, who famously actually bought treasury bonds in the Magellan Fund because he was so concerned about the stock market. And he, you know, he held cash, but then he also bought bonds. So these are things that no longer exist in the current investment universe. I mean, you would never, first off, you could never buy treasuries in a mutual fund that was an equity fund to begin with, uh, much less, you know, hold any kind of cash. Um, but so the whole business has changed to be predisposed toward long only. Um, and I think that's just a consequence of this binary Fed policy where, you know, they are very slow and late always to raise rates. And then on the other side, they rush and cut and hold them way too low for way too long. And so the market has, you know, been trained that, Basically, you're never going to have any sustained downturn. You just always want to be long. And hedge funds, why would they hedge against, you know, something that's really never going to happen? So not only do you not want to hold a hedge or hold cash, um, you want to be long, but that's not enough. You got to be long on leverage. So, I mean, this this whole business is sort of um, uh, perpetuated by bullish sell-side research that helps you know, justify the long only exposure that really ultimately at the end of the day has been um, created by this decades long policy of the Federal Reserve of just rushing in with the fire hoses every time the market stubs its toe. It's, um, uh, it's a fascinating thing, but you know, the damn thing won't change, the gravity being. I mean, you know, the, the, yes. having a willful blindness to how cycles play out, that CNI loan you know, that, that's, that cycle is happening. Like, the, you can't just take that away. And in fact, now we don't have the Fed coming to the rescue. We have the Fed still tightening, don't forget. So it's right. very, yep. it, it's, it's, it's the worst setup, I, I think, ever. Um, but there are causal relationships that fall out of us. Uh, you know, that, let's just go to that. Go to slide 53, guys, where, you know, the, the two things that, let's go to the consumer, which you've already called out, which I wanted to get to. Um, you know, jobless claims on the left, the relationship between the CNI cycle leading uh, the loss of cash flows and your job, uh, and then on the right side, the CapEx cycle. I mean, these are, to me, to you and I, these are trivial facts. I mean, 
Um, it would have to be entirely different this time. I mean, gravity would have to be. It, how, right. do you, how, do you, how do you answer to that when, when you're having conversations? I think it's hard to do. Yeah. Well, I think what it comes down to, and I, maybe I'm imposing my own view on it, but I, I think there's this expectation that, okay, well, the Fed's going to pivot because that's what they do. And therefore, you're going to have an easing of the credit conditions in the not uh, too distant future. And therefore, this cycle will be more compressed and the CNI lending thing really is going to be shorter this time and doesn't have the same, um, you know, uh, forecasting record that it did in the past. Um, and of course, I, you know, uh, I totally disagree with that in part because I think, um, you know, there's a, the credit quality issue that cannot be solved, even if even if you assume that the Fed is going to pivot, um, they would have to, as far as I'm concerned, cut rates all the way back down to where they were before they started to raise them to avert a default cycle. Mm -hmm. Because as I mentioned earlier, you know, if you were borrowing at 4%, uh, and now you've got to pay eight and a half. There is a huge swath of borrowers that can't do that. Um, so you're going to have a default cycle. As I said, you're already seeing it in the consumer space. You'll see it in the corporate space. We're seeing it in commercial real estate. Um, and that will tighten credit conditions irrespective of what the Fed does. So, you know, that's one pushback. The other one, we, we could have a whole conversation about this, is, is the Fed really going to pivot after having said, higher for longer uh, repeatedly and uh, Powell trying to prove that he's Volcker 2.0. If he rushes in and cuts rates, um, what about preserving that legacy that he's so desperate, I think now to preserve? Mm -hmm. That's a, another whole conversation. Um, but I think this entire optimism, getting back to your broader question, is rest, rests on this notion that we're going to get a pivot and therefore the Fed tightening is over and you need to position for the accommodative policy that is necessarily going to follow. Well, on that, I was just looking back to make sure that because I was on, um, I was with my, my wife and daughters on um, spring break, but um, Powell called it, and I quote, on the 13th of April, oh, look, use the same word as Bernanke, uh, a mild recession later this year, though. So that's his forecast. So can we right. let, so let's get into that. Like I mean, he's going to stay the course, but he's also going to stay with his forecast, which leads him to that course. Uh, absolutely. Right. But you and I have a forecast. Like my forecast for you guys go to slide fourteen. My forecast is currently that we're going to have a negative two GDP this quarter. <laughs> so uh -huh. you know, can, so can you go through that? Like how? Because I know you're. I mean, you're well known Fed critic, but for the right reasons. <laughs> well, I, I totally agree with you, by the way, on this quarter. Um, I think the speed with which the, the data fall apart is going to catch a lot of people by surprise. I mean, obviously, I don't need to tell you about how the first quarter was inflated by the typical seasonal factors. But then also, we had one of the warmest winters in history. I think January was the sixth warmest and February was the third warmest or vice versa. Uh, in 129 years. So well, all of that conspired to inflate the data in the first quarter and the second quarter fall off is going, I think, to be dramatic and catch people by surprise. 
Um, so I agree with you. You know, I think the Fed, not surprisingly, um, their forecast sucks and will be completely wrong as it is every single time. Um, and yet they're, you know, they're harnessing their policy, obviously, to this forecast that's always wrong. So their policy as ever will be wrong again. Um, so, you know, we just watch them make the, the same mistakes they always make. But they... You know, I, this again gets into the philosophical question: Is it willful ignorance on their part? Do they they must know that seasonally the first quarter numbers were inflated, and that you know we're going to head into this uh, fall off in the second quarter? They must know that. So, are they trying to gain uh, confidence? Are they trying to not scare people by having a softer forecast or forecasting a severe recession? Um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I uh, can't get inside Jerome Powell's head. Frankly, I never thought he'd raise rates uh, as quickly and dramatically as he has. So I, my head's spinning about what this guy's all about. <laughs> well, reg regardless, back to your point, you know, of the prior two experiences you and I had, like as a practical matter, like we had to make money through it. We had to write about it. We had to have forecasts, <laughs> you know, like accurate ones. But, yeah. you know... <laughs> In both periods, coming into the 2001 period, you know, Greenspan went turntail dovish and cut rates, and obviously Ben Bernanke went epically dovish. And, and, the, and, and that thing that every hedge fund client in particular asks me for, which is when does the cowbell come, I mean, that's when the bell tolled. I mean, that was not a, those were not positive catalysts. It's actually, isn't it when the Fed actually realizes that they were in a recession? <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. The idea, right, that... Uh... This is the, another thing that I keep being puzzled by, this idea that the pivot is uh, this Pavlovian signal that you should buy. Um, the, the catalyst for a pivot, especially after they've talked about higher for longer, is going to be something so ugly that you're not going to want to be long. You're going to be really um, trying to hit the sell button on everything at that point. I mean, like uh, that's why you 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 said you know the Fed you know, couldn't uh, forecast wind in a hurricane. I think you've said that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly it's, right. It's good. Oh um, now let's so let's take it to the next part, which you've written about extensively as well, which are grossly inflated expectations on earnings. Now it's one thing to get the cycle right. It's another thing to understand that that thing sleeps with like the corporate profit cycle, and that's the real thing going on here. So. You and I understand that. Maybe not everyone watching this understands that, or maybe they're not paid to understand that. There's two different things, right? Um, so right. Can, can you go through you know, where you think, I mean, guys, show slide 62 where next 12 months earnings, I mean, it's, this is the joke beyond jokes, you know, in yeah. terms of like, what are we, two to 5% off the mother of all time highs, which include the funniest money you could ever have plus the government handouts. I mean, this is, yeah. this is beyond absurd. Um, how absurd do you think expect? And then you'll hear every day the the the, the you know, clown show that is CNBC. They'll say, "Oh, it's better than expected." You know, right. Like, <laughs> oh like dude, gosh. Nasdaq has had six companies out of a hundred report negative earnings of seventy-two percent year over year. I don't know who was expecting that. That was along the Nasdaq right, last right. year, but it's not many. Um, so, <laughs> can you go through your view on the earnings cycle? Well, and forget about guidance, which has been overwhelmingly negative. But um, so there are a couple things on the profit thing. Uh, first, I like to look at a very simplistic 
proxy for corporate profits, and that is the CPI, which is consumer prices, versus the PPI, input prices. And that's basic, you know, kind of a, a, a proxy for profit margins. What's What are you paying for your inputs versus your ability to pass those prices along? And during this great inflation surge, uh, input prices went up so much faster than consumer prices. I mean, everyone was myopically fixated on the CPI and completely ignored what was going on with the PPI. And meanwhile, behind the curtain, corporate margins were getting absolutely pressed to the bone. Um, and there were a handful of companies that were able to pass on some of their input costs, but not all of them. And that's become really evident uh, in the consumer facing sectors. Um, but what's amazing to me is that, like you said, the expectations are still pie in the sky. I mean, I think earnings estimates for the full year S&P are like minus 2% by the end of the year after, as you said, you know, ridiculously inflated earnings uh, met, uh, numbers for the year prior. Um, but what's stunning to me isn't even that number. It's what's contributing uh Consumer discretionary earnings are forecast to be up over 10% this year. Um, financials are going to be up, I think, 8.5% is the estimate. And real estate is going to be up another 8% or something. So it's I don't know what they're smoking out there, but uh, these numbers just make no sense to me. I mean, the three areas I, I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole are the three areas that the analysts are most bullish on in terms of earnings forecasts. So you're asking the wrong person if you're looking for answers as to what they're coming up with there, because I have no clue how they come up with these forecasts. Nothing I see suggests that we're going to see earnings growth. In fact, um, I was looking at just the inventory cycle alone as mm -hmm. you know, well, that's another topic you and I can talk about is this um, unprecedented inventory build that we've had. And we two years in still haven't really made much progress in drawing that down. That's going to be accomplished through massive discounting. Um, and the last several inventory cycles we saw resulted in a 22 percentage point swing in profit growth, 22 percentage points from the peak of the inventory cycle. So based on that, we should be looking at at least minus 14% earnings growth this year. And that's just based on the inventory cycle. Forget it, layering on the credit bubble bust, you know, the tightening of credit conditions. So anyway, that was a whole mouthful there. No, Sorry. that's it. But you know what? Everything, <laughs> everything that comes out of your mouth is, is, is within like an, it, it's an empirical fact. This is why Steph goes first, because she can forget more on the way to the bear cave than most people that can tweet, and everyone can, will ever, ever know, okay? You know, and it's, it's, it's an important thing, you know, to understand these, these relationships. The one that she just called out, we have it on slide 39, guys. Inventories, you know, looking at inventories versus backlogs and the leading indicator that was embedded therein. I mean, that was a bubble. I mean, these, every single component of earnings was a bubble. So that, I mean, you, so you're saying down four, I, I actually have a really hard time, Steph, getting to, um, I'm better than bad at now casting uh, real GDP growth and headline inflation, but I struggle with where the, where the bottom is on the rate of change of S&P 500 earnings growth. I mean, in other words, like, I know I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to get it wrong because I'm too high. Like, yeah. in, if you go back to, to, to the two, coming out of the last growth bubble, 
as you well know, like you know, S&P earnings you had a, what was it, a 45 to 50 percent drawdown? I was going to say 50 percent. Yeah, something like that. Yep. And now they're down uh, five? I know. <laughs> right. And but we're done. Yeah, it's that all it's it. all priced in. Um, right. Absolutely. It's priced yeah, in. Well, yeah. You know, earnings are surprising on the upside, as you said. So uh, obviously we've done all the homework and, and we should be good. Well, this is, I mean, like, guys, it was slide 60, by the way. I mean, it, when you call it the everything bubble, I call it the mother of all bubbles. I go hashtag Moab. You know, it's it's like, you know, isn't everything that is a bubble that is now identifiably like I can't own, like commercial real estate, just part and parcel, you know, a function of those trailing cash flows? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, that's why I keep coming back to this idea. This idea that you know you can't just focus on commercial real estate or uh, the consumer and say these little things are isolated. I mean, again, this is the fruits of unprecedented accommodation that have built up forever, and um, people made the mistake of looking at earnings and believing that they were somehow separate from this froth um, and all the leverage that was created. And and that's particularly problematic when it comes to S&P earnings. Yep. I like to look at the government accounting of profits, which you know doesn't have a lot of the issues that the S&P earnings numbers do. But the primary problem with the S&P earnings numbers is they're inflated by share buybacks. And that's where a lot of the funny money went. I mean, a trillion dollars plus a year in share buybacks will have a pretty big impact on those earnings per share numbers um, in, in making them look substantially better than the reality beneath the surface. And that's why I look at, you know, the difference between the S&P numbers and, and the government's profit accounting. Mm. And uh, since 2016, the uh, S&P earnings numbers are up twice as much as the government profit uh, numbers. So there you go. I mean, it's uh, half of it is just air. Yeah, and you're and you're being um, you're being a nice bear right now because there's also like fraud in the numbers. There's accounting, <laughs> like there's yes. there's, a, there's a lot, and 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 that's an empirical fact as well. Once you go to negative year-over-year cash flow growth, even in S and P 500 terms, that's where the rate of change of fraud picks up because people try to hide the fact that they don't have any money. Um, it's 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 not that complicated for real humans. It's human not beings, an accident that those guys at what was it Indiana University had this study that said fraud was at the, the fraud. Uh, warning was at the highest level since the 1970s in terms of S&P earnings right now. They have some kind of indicator that they look at. Um, and that was their conclusion was that, uh, you know, corporate fraud is the most rampant since the the stagflationary 70s when they were probably presumably forced to do a lot of this stuff yeah. to uh, flatter earnings that were being decimated by the inflation issues that we're, we're contending with again today. Hi. Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of sector pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. One other big topic, I mean, there, there are plenty of topics like you and I could keep going and going. Um, <laughs> what do you say back, you know, it was one thing to say, well, look at corporate balance sheets. <laughs> now look at corporates. Uh, look at, oh, look at the savings rate, Steph. Look at the savings. Uh -huh. And now look at it, it's 
on-cycle lows going to make right. new, new all-time lows. Um, I love that excess saving thing. Wait, <laughs> explain to me what an excess savings is. I really love that whole thesis. But anyway, sorry. But I it's digress. talking points. Like, just, Steph and I, right. you, if you guys think that your life's tough out there uh, in the audience, try being mama and papa bear out here. We have to answer to all these talking points. And they're everywhere. And, and, yeah. and the big one that's kind of the last of the Mohicans, which most people who've studied, like, Past their nose in economics should should know is late cycle labor as an indicator. So uh-huh. you know people. Oh, but the jobs market, Steph. The jobs market right. is so resilient, and the consumer this time it's just different. Yeah, absolutely. So what well, do you think about and, that? Well, I was actually thinking this morning the uh, Fed came out with a study about labor conditions, and it revealed that the minimum uh, wage anyone would accept to take a job had increased another $2,000 over the course of the year or something. So basically, these labor studies are um, really reinforcing the Fed's idea that the labor market is so tight that they can't possibly pivot um, and that inflation is going to remain hot. And I think, like you said, you know, this is talk about rear view mirror. I mean, employment lags in general. But never more so than after you come out of a pandemic where no one could hire people. And when they finally got a couple of people to come back to work, what's their impulse to let them go the second things slow down? Probably pretty limited. So my sense is we're, we had this people talk about labor hoarding. Well, OK, if we had labor hoarding over the last year um, because, you know, they were desperate to get people. What when they finally exceed the reality of what is looking, you know, what we're looking at here in terms of the recession that's coming, um, I would think that you will see a complete uh, reversal in this labor market where you go from incredibly tight to incredibly slack because Mm. that labor hoarding becomes excess labor and they just cut all the excess labor in one fell swoop because you know the as we've talked about the earnings picture behind the curtain is not very good at all and it's only going to get worse and the number one cost of business is labor so Mm -hmm. um they've been trying to stay tough and just kind of ride it out but when they discover that what they're going to have to ride out isn't going to be a one quarter or two quarter phenomenon but probably maybe a 2008-9, you know, really deep recession, I would think you could see those jobs cut in a hurry. So I I think this labor story is going to blow up in their faces, um, given the speed with with which it's going to reverse. And I know that you've got all the charts like I do that overlay things like, you know, housing versus labor and C&I loans versus labor and, you know, the, uh, the sharp uh, declines that we've seen in housing activity and, and credit conditions and whatnot, um, you know, basically foretell a really sharp reversal in employment as well. Yeah, we, I mean, if, if, if you look, again, for people that actually do this job and do it deliberately and consistently and look at every data set, which is not easy to do. It's got to be your job. Let's just start with that, not just a thought. <laughs> um, and, you know, a lot of people just haven't, you know, called out, including the Fed, which is kind of shocking, Everything from like hours work to, to you know, temp staffing, anything that's rate of change underneath the hood, or even composite surveys like employment uh, you know, surveys inside of the PMI. So, um, it, what you're saying is already happening. What's What's amazing is it's the uh, the Federal Reserve doesn't start with that, but it's 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 okay. I mean, it's 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 what a bear needs to eat, right? You, if they weren't going to get this categorically wrong, 
then where would the upside be for for the Bears? I mean, I right, I, exactly. I don't I don't know. Um, you know, by the way, if you have questions for uh, Steph, pop them in the queue. I'm going to ask him. We have 10 minutes left here, and you have some, you have some fans here, not surprisingly here, Steph, so uh, they, they have some questions. Um, but uh, my last question before we go to their question is, because you do a great job with all these lead-lag relationships. You have your own indicators, obviously, as you've called out multiple um, your relationships, like the CPI to PPI. Have you done that same thing with to labor you know, this time, with labor being... You know, you could say this time, actually, you should say this time labor is different in terms of its structure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I guess it's hard to compare it to anything because this cycle is unique in terms of labor um, and the post-pandemic experience. And then, of course, you get this whole work from home thing, which is another phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I guess, you know, I the one thing I do look at is every survey on the planet that relates to employment, whether it's the ISMs or the regional Fed surveys, um, NFIB. And what strikes me is that the payroll survey is the exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. And the rule is that every other indicator is telling you that you have a softening in employment conditions. The payroll survey seems to be living in a, you know, universe unto its own. Um, And, you know, I do a lot of really nerdy deep dive stuff on the seasonal adjustments and the birth death factor that contribute to this payroll survey um, and what you see in the headline numbers. And there's been a lot of fairly dubious stuff going on there um, that really, you know, would make your your audience's eyes glaze over. But suffice to say, um, those numbers really don't add up in my view, and uh, I, I'm just waiting for that reality to become revealed yeah. at some point. Well, I mean, I, we've been trying to use the, I've tried to use every analogy, for God's sakes, at this point, but I mean, like the sinkhole. I mean, the, the last thing to cave in is the surface, which is yeah. the NFP number. And um, you yeah. know, by that time, I, I mean, I'm expecting, I, I, a lot of bulls don't expect this. They're like, oh, that's when the Fed has a green light to cut, Keith. And I'm like, well, it's also when consumption growth can go to zero because people yeah. are getting fired. <laughs> well, faster, right? I, I love the quip that people make, which is um, you never have a recession with the unemployment rate this low. Oh, it's yeah. like, no, the fact is the recession always starts at the low in the unemployment rate. Yes, you know, it's yes. like yeah, it's pretty much the rule. So, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how things get, you know, that saying, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. And <laughs> They repeat these lies with impunity on CNBC and these places. Oh, the consumer is strong. There's all kinds of excess saving. Uh, you, you never have a recession with the unemployment rate this low. Um, the market always rallies right when you start a recession. Well, yeah, but the Fed's not tightening into it when that, you know, it's like there are all these lies that get repeated and I, are I, swallowed. I, I, I don't think they know they're lying. I think they're that dumb. Like, I mean, like, numb, dumb, whatever word you want to use. I mean, macro unaware, I use that. I use willful blindness. I mean, this is a tough job. If you haven't studied, like, you've done it for a quarter century. I mean, I don't want to try to, you know, like, right. date you here. Right. But I, I know, mean, I'm an old lady. It's like, I get it. I get it. The point is made. <laughs> but it's, like, it's just, I, you know, like, it's, I'm, I think that's why we're having more fun with it. I think as a... Yeah. As a younger man and woman, you and, you and I were 
probably probably not you, but definitely me, like quite surly, you know, like right. you know, angry, revenant bear, you know, kind of thing. Like right, now right. it's just like when I see this stuff or hear this stuff, you know, it's, you see it because of Twitter. I mean, I'm like, you're just a fucking idiot. I mean, it's just like. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say what it is. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I'm with you. No, I, you were almost, I think, back in the day, I was almost reticent. Like, wow, I mean, I feel so bearish and, you know, maybe I'm missing it, even though I was doing all this work and coming to this conclusion and everyone else was telling me it was going to be fine. And I doubted myself. Now I I have the... Um, capacity to actually say what you're saying, but I, I won't repeat it because I'm a lady. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate oh it. That's why, you know, we have to have this, um, you know, I think Jocko Willink's new book is called uh, The Dichotomy of Leadership, uh -huh. which is, you know, you have to have some balance. You know, you got to have this you have to have the mama bear and you have to have the papa bear. So right there you, you go. <laughs> papa bears, Canadian potty, hockey mouth, and you got you know classy lady. Um, well, I don't know how classy, but whatever. <laughs> all right, all right. Lady is true enough. Hi, Robert McGordy here, director of subscriber development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis. Our favorite stock ideas and our risk manager in chief Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction, long-and-short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. All right. Well, apparently ladies own gold miners. I did not know this because this question implies that you do. So, uh, okay. Stephanie, love, love your views. Within the past year, you've revealed that you've had, a, you've had substantial positions in gold and the miners, as have many of us. Uh, have you made any adjustments out of those two areas? Uh, no. Nope. I'm there core positions in my portfolio. I mean, the only thing that I've changed is to buy some T-bills rather than parking my money in the bank. So <laughs> that's yeah. about it. But yeah, gold, gold miners and long data treasuries. I'm still um, interested in that part of the curve and um, and then, you know, some cash. So, so yeah. you and I have a very, um, very similar setup, it's, it, it appears. So uh, I'm not surprised to learn that. <laughs> yeah, they used to say, gentlemen prefer bonds. Dare you call me one? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, the gold, gold's a, a, there are a couple questions on gold. Um, it, yeah, so the bulls will say other things like, well, the yield curve being an inverted, that's not a leading indicator this time for a recession. Or uh, they don't even, if, once you get them to gold, that can't even be discussed. But this breakout right. in gold, I mean, it won't be long before we see all-time highs. Has that ever been a bullish signal? Oh my gosh, no. In fact, um, one thing that I look very closely at is the gold to copper ratio, mm -hmm. which um, you know is an indicator of financial versus economic strength, let's yep. say. Um, and it's just another one of these crude uh, barometers that I use. And whenever you know gold is uh, outperforming copper, it's generally been a sign that you've got some financial ugliness coming down the pike. Um, so yeah, no, I'm with you. It, generally, when gold is hitting new highs, um, it's not a time to be loading the boat uh, with S&P calls or anything like that. Uh, quite the contrary. 
Um, and we haven't even gotten into this whole conversation about the dollar um, and ways to hedge around that. But I think, you know, in addition to hedging financial risk, uh, gold obviously serves the the other key purpose of um, hedging against a further debasement of the dollar. Yeah, the, so um, I love it. The, uh, <laughs> the, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Today's a good example, too. And we've had uh, the frequency and severity of days that have had intraday reversals on something monkey like spies versus uh, versus gold, you know, they're, they're starting to add up, i.e. they're becoming, they already are a trend. But um, anyway, yeah. uh, moving along. Actually, we only have time for one more question. Um, Brandon uh, from Charleston. I'm actually going to Charleston soon with my daughter for a hockey tournament. Oh, lucky you. Oh, Fun I, town. I am lucky. Because <laughs> you know, hockey tournaments, you go to like some really like nasty spots. You know, usually this is this is nice. Um, yeah. But this is a good, here's a good question because I have to deal with this every day. Uh, Stephanie um, from Brandon in Charleston. Stephanie, how do you risk manage your positioning during these bloody bear market rallies, you know, while waiting for this whole thing to play out? Well, I'll confess, I don't own any stocks other than gold miners, so that's how I do it. I stay on the <laughs> sidelines. Um, and and I, one thing I did change was that I uh, finally stopped buying puts on the S&P. Every year, I load up on some puts that, you know, with like December expiration, because I figure I, if the market does finally crash, I, I would be so upset if I didn't have a position on so I do that, and every money, every money, every year, that uh, money just goes up in a puff of smoke. So um, that's probably why we've been having these uh, bear market rallies here, is that I don't have any puts on. So, <laughs> but but basically, yeah, I have no exposure to the equity market whatsoever, other than via my gold miners, and I view them as sort of an inverse. Uh, equity market uh, position there anyway. So that's how I how I uh, hedge myself. Well, we'll call it the uh, maturation of mama bear. I mean, this is like, um, I, <laughs> right, I'm growing up. <laughs> it's like you, 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 every, it's our third time, you know, our third one. And you, I, at least like, I didn't own nearly enough treasury bonds in 2008. You know, there's, there are a lot more ways to make money than I did in the, you know, get the direction of the, and the call, right. But I didn't yeah. make, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. I mean, now I think I know what to do. Uh, we'll have to see. And the same thing with gold. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I guess that, that isn't that a little bit more fun too, where you don't have to wake up with FOMO. I mean, today, gold miners up two point two percent. You know, your beloved spies flat down. Whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter. Exactly. I I go to sleep. I rest very easy at night, owning gold in the miners and no stocks. I feel very good. <laughs> Well, you, you, you look good. You look like about, you look okay. about as, I'm trying to get, we have this hedge eye anxiety meter that we've built, oh. which it's a, it's a good little algo. It's not AI because we, we, we don't have market cap to trade. So I'm not trying to get people to juice hedge okay. eye stock here, but this is like, it is, it is an algo. Um, and I, I'm, I'm trying, and I'm going to try throughout this investing summit step to get people to, to how Steph Pomboy looks right now like the, you you look as calm cool and collected as any bearer whereas like you said back in our former lives we're we're younger yeah. inexperienced worried that we're <laughs> going to be dead wrong every day having bosses tell us we we're wrong um which is an entirely bigger yes. problem a lot of stress yeah. and i want to make sure that people know that we know that people that don't have experience getting these recessions and bear markets right are right stressed out we know what fomo yeah. is so 
I appreciate yeah. that you've kind of, well, I mean, you're not kind of, I mean, the way that you've you know, express yourself and the way that you just look about it. I mean, it's, 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 it's the, it's the nicest looking mama bear that we've seen. Well, thank you. My, my calmness and confidence meter is the inverse of your uh, anxiety meter. So <laughs> when everyone else is nervous, I feel great. That's awesome. That's why we had, that's why we had you lead off. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Keith. Always a pleasure. Enjoy the rest of the conference. I can't wait to tune in. Okay. Well, cool. I, I hope the other bears are as calm and cool and really cool and as collected as Steph Pombo. Uh, up next, we have Aisha Tariq. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal tax accounting or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at Hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.